So welcome back to another episode of the Russia Contingency. I am Michael Kaufman, and today I have a special guest and longtime friend, Sergei Rodchenko. I'm actually visiting him at Johns Hopkins Size Bologna, thanks to his invitation. Sergey, maybe take a second to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm uh, Sergey Rachenko. I'm a professor here in Sais Bologna and uh, very happy. I'm very happy to see uh, Mike Kaufman visit me here uh, in Europe. It's it's a great opportunity, a good opportunity for old friends to uh, get together and talk about Russia. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So, Sergey, you and I have been talking for quite a long time before this war, during this war, exchanging views on the run-up to it as to whether or not it would even happen. And since, you know, it's been quite a few months, in fact, in some respects, it might even feel like it's been ages since this war began, for those of us who have been following it. I want to take advantage of your historical knowledge. You're frankly one of the leading historians in the field to get your perspective on what you think the implications of this war might be for Russia. Now, I'll start by by using what I think are often helpful mental tools, which is analogies. You know, we, all analogies are imperfect. Because you often sort of strip away the parts of the history and the context you don't like for the analogy that you want to use. But are there historical parallels that are useful to think about in this experience and in what we're seeing right now in this war? Well, Russia has fought many wars through its long history. And we can, you know, we actually, you can, you can go back to history. It's so rich that you can, you can find any evidence to back any argument that you want to make. So I, I'm with you on the limitations of analogies. And we can talk about, for example, the Crimean War from uh, uh, 1853 to 1856. Um, the Russo-Japanese War is an interesting example. Uh, those are wars that Russia lost. Um, the Winter War of 1939-1940, you know, the Afghanistan War when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Again, those are wars that Russia lost to an extent, I would say, with the Winter War, it's more complicated. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Winter War. Winter War, technically, Russia probably won the war. Well, but, yes. But it, but it, uh, it was a Pyrrhic victory. victory. It's a Pyrrhic victory. A lot of people say, well, here's, you know, Stalin lost that war. In the end, of course, it was Finland that lost territory. But uh, it, it is interesting if you think back about, uh, you know, 100, 150 years of Russian history that uh, if you're, for example, a Russian living in Russia, you know, the, the example that the state wants you to think about, that the Kremlin wants you to think about is the Second World War. Russia won it, the Soviet Union and won it. But actually, there were so many wars than that Russia lost in the Soviet Union. Sure. And the thing about great powers historically, and I've always seen Russia as a relatively weak great power, right? It has these sort of peaks and valleys valleys in its history. And people often remember sort of the peaks, the bright points, or certainly Russian elites do, right? They, sure. they remember their part of the coalitions in the Napoleonic Wars. Yes. They remember their participation. 1812, 1845, great moments. Right, know, right. But, uh, but nobody remembers all those wars that Russia lost. Right, right. And they, they remember their part of World War II, uh, specifically the post-1941 part of World exactly. War II. Exactly. Not the 1939 to 41 part. Y yes, yes. Well, or for this matter, the first month of, of uh, war after uh, Hitler invaded. Those were also extremely difficult for Russia. But, you know, 
know, they did come back and they did uh, uh, defeat Nazi Germany. And that is a part of, of the great reality and the great historical myth upon which uh, uh, the Russians today, the Russian government today, builds its legitimacy narrative that, you know, we prevail then and we can still prevail. But the, the uh, uh, question is, you know, how different is this war in Ukraine from uh, previous wars? I think that this war in Ukraine actually has more in common with the wars that Russia lost, i.e. like the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, for example, um, uh, rather than to, to the great, you know, uh, patriotic war, 1941-45. One way to look at it, at least from my point of view, is that this could end up being a series of wars. In fact, I've, I've increasingly taken the pessimistic view that there's a good chance the way this war ends, especially if it ends relatively early, right? That is, if some folks who want to see negotiations have have their way, at least right now, that it's only going to lead to some sort of unhappy, indeterminate peace, which will yield another war. In fact, this war is fundamentally a continuation war of the initial Russian invasion in 2014. Well, let me challenge you on this. Okay, people do say this. People do say that, for example, if we have ceasefire, then this will just merely allow P uh, Putin to rebuild his forces and prepare for new uh, aggression against Ukraine. But one thing that I don't understand is suppose the Russians are pushed out of Ukraine, and that's of course still a pie in the sky, but let's say the Ukrainian forces continue their offensive and are successful and push them out uh, all the way to the lines of 2014. What prevents Russia then from coming Coming back again and attacking Ukraine again. So I don't see the logic here. So technically nothing. The difference between these outcomes is, is I think twofold. First, if Russia is still in Ukraine, right, that's still occupying significant parts of Ukraine, right? Uh, I, I think that sometimes we're also often talking about ideals, right? That is sort of Russia's pushed completely out of Ukraine. What does that mean? Does that include Crimea or not? Well, for I example? Think that's a big question, yeah, yeah. But let's put that, you know, let's put that aside. But okay, but let's not let's not argue over small details. Let's let's focus on 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 the big picture argument, which is if Russia still occupies significant parts of Ukraine, then future leaders are essentially committed to an enduring conflict of some sort of with Ukraine. Because you can't imagine Ukraine really making a peace on these terms. So the best you're going to get a ceasefire. Now, you can look out long term and you say, hey, some ceasefires, like let's say the resolution of the Korean War, they could have uh they could last for decades. Uh, I think the challenge, the second challenge I would make is that there are two conversations taking place about the prospect of negotiations and a ceasefire. There's a conversation folks like me are having when they're looking only about six months out. That is, if there's a ceasefire right now, Russia rebuilds, reconstitutes forces. And by this, I mean in the next six months, not in the next 20 years. Okay. It's two different timelines that are being discussed and then renews the war because the Russian military is the most vulnerable right now. A second conversation is by folks who imagine there's a ceasefire and it lasts for some years. And then they say, well, but the West could substantially aid Ukraine and arm it so that it could deter a future Russian invasion. So why not? Yeah. And, and those are valid, you know, valid issues to discuss. Uh, since you touched on the Korean War, uh, you know, this is also an interesting analogy. And I forget to mention it in the series of wars, of course, that Russia fought. I mean, in that case, the Soviet Union was not really directly involved, except for some air providing some air support um, uh, and some advisors. Uh, but it is interesting to think about the Korean wars and as an analogy for for the for the current conflict. If you remember where it began, it began in June 1950. 
uh, with the North Korean invasion, which was uh, immediately successful, but then they kind of ran into difficulties. And obviously, there was the Incheon landing by the US forces, which led almost to North Korean complete collapse, when, at which point the Chinese intervened uh, at the end of 1950. But what happened then, after a few months of fighting, is you had in by approximately the spring, after you know, spring uh, Chinese offensive failed, you have basically stalemate that develops in Korea. What's striking about the situation is that it took two years of further fighting, uh, further destruction before an actual ceasefire was arranged. So that is an interesting uh, and worrying in many ways, worrying analogy of what, what might happen if the Ukrainians uh, continue uh, and the Russians also are able to stabilize their front lines, perhaps push back a little bit. But if front lines stabilize, it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll have a ceasefire. But we could eventually have a ceasefire. And then, of course, you're right to think about the long term. You know, what happens then if, let's say, uh, Putin leaves uh, the scene, uh, his successors come to power, are they going to continue this? Are they going to be willing to negotiate if the Korean War is uh, is an analogy then then certainly uh, in in 1953 after Stalin's death uh, the new Soviet leadership uh, uh, very quickly moved to negotiate uh, um, on on the question of Korea let me bring up a different one what if the war ends and following its ending uh, we have the problem of the fact that it's really up to the loser of a war to concede defeat. Even if they've visibly lost on the battlefield, they can simply nod at defeat. They can keep it going. Uh, you have cases like the series of Arab-Israeli wars, right? 1967 war, Israel wins decisively. And what follows that is the Israeli-Egyptian war of attrition for the next three years, which is an undeclared war, essentially. That's still Absolutely. Ongoing. And Sadat is determined to make a comeback, you know, declares the year of decision, ultimately, obviously, declares a war in Israel in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Um, so, yeah, that that is... Uh, uh, that is certainly also an interesting analogy. Even you know, if Russia is pushed out, you could still have this kind of sense of revanchism or a sense of uh, irredentism or just you know this desire to come back and still uh, strike at what's ours, you know, so to speak, right? I.e., the territory that they proclaimed as theirs. Uh, so those, uh, you know, that is that is still a very interesting, very interesting possibility. I mean, the real question is, what are the Russian elites thinking? Those people around Putin, do they? Share his vision of the world? Do they share his absolute determination to hold on to bits and pieces of Ukraine, if not, you know, completely hold Ukraine for a subservient state? Or do they think, okay, we are in this for a while because we don't see any other options, but let's say if this guy is out of the way, whether he drops dead or, you know, something happens to him, are we still going to insist on this program of confrontation with the West and war over Ukraine? Or are we going to arrive at a reasonable compromise like the Soviets did in the Korean war in 1953. Yeah, and there was an interesting War in the Rocks article recently, the author's name escapes me right now, and it was discussing the fact that oftentimes after leaders change, when, when a said leader begins a war or uh, launches a conflict, uh, we assume that the next leader, if it's a misadventure, might quickly seek an end to it. But that's not really true, that actually in a lot of cases, uh, change in leadership doesn't automatically yield peace. Although, in the case of Russia and the Soviet Union, I think you can come up with a fair number of examples of when a change in leadership did produce a change in approach to the war. 
Well, here's here's one example of uh, Gorbachev, right? We have the invasion of Afghanistan, December 1979. The Soviet leaders recognized pretty quickly that it was a strategic mistake on their part to do that. And yet they continue fighting, they continue supporting Babrak Kamral, the, the, their puppet ruler in Afghanistan, uh, until Gorbachev comes, or, uh, comes around. And he very quickly states that this is a bleeding wound and we have to get out. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's a serious problem for Gorbachev. And he immediately begins... Uh, but even with Gorbachev, and, and this is kind of remarkable as well. I mean, think about Gorbachev, this starry-eyed, you know, liberal idealist, etc., etc., as he's known in the West. It took him, uh, well, four years, right, uh, until February 1989, before final Soviet forces left Afghanistan. What was he doing before then, from March 1985 until 89? Well, he was trying to fix the situation. He was trying to prop up Najibullah. Uh, I mean, obviously, he replaced Babrak Kamral with somebody who was seen as more effective. Uh, he was trying some kind of program of national reconciliation, or God knows what, um, until he finally said, okay, that's enough. And even at the last 11th hour, people like Shevardnadze were still telling him, you know, we need to go there and still support our clients. And Gorbachev finally said, no, we can't. And so we had the Soviet withdrawal that was affected and the Soviets, you know, left Afghanistan. But even with a person like Gorbachev, who immediately changed the Soviet course, it still took years before final disengagement. And that also is an interesting historical analogy, an interesting historical lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And you have several others. So in World War One, you have de facto two revolutions and the new kind of... Yeah, you have the, the, Bol the Bolsheviks basically try to continue the war against the Germans for a time. You know, or Trotsky's position of no war, no, no peace. No war, peace. Yeah, exactly. which was a disastrous position and, and ended up in the Treaty of brest Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that is a, that is an interesting example. Uh, sometimes when you have a change of leadership, you actually have an intensification of war. And the good example of this is uh, the Soviet involvement in the Vietnam. Vietnam War. After Khrushchev was ousted in October 1964, the new Soviet leadership of Leonid Brezhnev and Kosygin uh, actually uh, reasserted Soviet commitment to North Vietnam, started supporting them a lot, you know, on a much greater scale because they thought it was important for their standing, their legitimacy, internal legitimacy, international legitimacy, uh, even though they did not necessarily agree with what the North Vietnamese were doing. So that is, uh, that, you know, like I said, change of leadership and as you said, actually, change of leadership does not necessarily produce an immediate change of policy, uh, although sometimes it does. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I would jerk to say it's it's contagious, but uh, but 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 the truth the truth is that the history of it can lead you to to different conclusions. But a, a, at the very least, my my point in all of this is that it's clear that those folks who hope that if there is a change in leadership or regime change in Russia, that it will uh, lead to a uh, rather quick end of the war, the the short answer is that it's not necessarily so. It's not necessarily so, but there's this, uh, you know, a group of people, uh, I won't name names necessarily, but, uh, you know, who, who hope for change of leadership and who hope that this is followed by some kind of civil strife in Russia, i.e. the Russians will be so preoccupied with their um, domestic problems that they will just, you know, forget about Ukraine. Yeah, but this has happened before. That's how the Soviet Union was created, which leads me to an Oscar Wilde quote of there are two great tragedies in life. The first one's not getting what you want, and the second one is getting it. 
Ah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we have to be very careful here with what you know about what we are wishing for, obviously, you know, the scenario of Russia falling apart and, and into some kind of civil strife. By the way, I don't think it's a completely unrealistic scenario, given just how explosive situation is in the Caucasus, for example, you know, um, uh, weakening of Russia could uh, result in, in, in centrifugal tendencies, but there are all kinds of dangers that are attached to this. But the very least, you can already see, uh, I think, in some respects, resulting from the war or a weakened Russia that's seen clearly by other uh, former Soviet republics as no longer being an arbiter of security in the region, particularly in the Caucasus and in Central Asia. Because you've seen a number of countries either take opportunities like Azerbaijan or conflicts are up actually in Central Asia uh, over the course of this year. Because like it or not, Russia does play this role at the very least. Uh, it sucks. Often sucks the oxygen out of the room in terms of in terms of security, still e in these regions. And so, uh, whether or not there's internal strife in Russia, one thing that I think might, is going to be resulting from this war is there will be increased strife or uh, much reduced capacity for conflict management. And all the periphery in places yeah. like the Caucasus. Um, yeah, absolutely. In places of like Central Asia, also it will allow uh, external actors to to come in and do more stuff for better or worse. And we have seen Turkey already play that role uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. You know, the Chinese are eyeing the situation very careful. I would say the Chinese have no real experience of this kind of you know intervention. They are not getting involved in Central Asia, uh, not because Russia considers that it's uh, quote-unquote backyard, but because the Chinese themselves really don't have any experience, although they're trying to build it up in places like Tajikistan, um, you know, but so far they're involved in more uh, economically than in kind of provision of security. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest reasons for that is that the West, but specifically the United States, I think from my point of view, has always had a very fitful engagement with this part of the world. And uh, kind of writing something a bit on the subject right now is that the that there were two interrelated challenges resulting from the collapse and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Let's say the first one was what to deal with a security vacuum in Europe with the aims and, and ambitions of Central and Eastern European states with the sort of rapid uh, departure of Soviet influence and Soviet power. And that's one challenge that the U.S. focused on quite a bit and came up solutions for. And, and did it successfully in terms of NATO enlargement, etc. I mean, one of the reasons for it in the 1990s was precisely to fill the vacuum because there was a fear that if vacuum continues to persist, you'll have, you'll have, uh, you know, uh, a conflict like in Yugoslavia breaking out in various parts of Eastern Europe, and that was not a very pleasant scenario. Right. But the second challenge I saw, and this is the one that's enduring, actually, w whatever you may think of NATO enlargement, let's put that conversation aside, although they are heavily interrelated, is the question of uh, Soviet collapse as a process and the fact that what I think we're seeing over the course of several decades now are fundamentally wars of Soviet succession and that this is a conflict of Soviet succession and it may well not be the last uh, sort of uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. To me, uh, this question of what to do with managing the process of Soviet dissolution has always been a more vexing one. And in large parts of the Soviet Union, uh, the United States and, and the other Western countries have had a very fitful involvement. They never sure were sure that they cared. They never had a model for engagement. They didn't like Russian solutions either, since they were principally uh, imperialist in many in many respects. Uh, but they often didn't want to get involved. And if you look on a case-by-case -case basis, there, there are quite a few times where it sort of led to the worst of both outcomes in terms of 
uh, the approach taken. I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the United States obviously does not have a model like NATO enlargement for much of what used to be on Soviet periphery, it's in Central Asia, etc. So Russian departure from there uh, does not necessarily mean that the United States will have means or the will to actually do something about provision of security uh, or even you know the the knowledge about how to go about those societies. So that is going to be a challenge. And you know I'm very much with you on this question of how to manage. How do you manage this disintegration of the Soviet Union that seems to be continuing in many ways 30 years after the official Soviet collapse? That is a big question for our times, and there is no uh, easy answer. And, the, and then, of course, a, a part of part of the question that we have not uh, yet uh, uh, talked about, which makes the situation particularly dangerous and very different, for example, from uh, let's say the 1920s, when the early 1920s, or the after the period after the Russian Revolution, where you had civil war and everything was called coming apart in the in 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 Russia at that time, Tsarist Russia. You know, it was all terrible, but it was not as terrible as what could happen now because of the, of course the presence of nuclear weapons, uh, and and that is a, that is a concern, and that is. You know the reason why the why President uh, President uh, Bush uh, Senior was uh, so reluctant, I guess, to endorse uh, uh, the, what 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 he considered to be toxic nationalism forces in, in his famous speech in 1991. Um, uh, because he feared, uh, he feared that there would be, you know, ethnic strife in the USR. What would that mean for American security? What would that mean for European security? And we still don't know. So that, you know, this that that is the nightmare scenario that nobody knows anything about. So when people are saying, okay, let's see if maybe you know the way out of this conflict is for Russia to fall apart. Uh, yeah, I think you're quite right <laughs> in that, in the sense that, yeah, this is a, certainly one way out of a conflict that could bring about completely unimaginable um, uh, and, and, and very dangerous uh, uh, circumstances. Yeah, to me, it's very much also an issue of misinterpreting history. The first being is the dissolution of the Soviet Union along what looked like relatively clean lines, although there were a number of succession conflicts over who gets to be a state and who doesn't. Well, sure, you had Tajikistan, you had uh, Georgia, uh, Abkhazia, et cetera, et cetera. The second was the successful management of uh, the question of nuclear weapons, and, and which took which took quite a bit of effort, uh, and to me, sort of the but the third one was the impression from the 1990s that actually uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, right, and and went out sort of with a whimper instead of a bang. And I sort of thought about it, and the more I look, I look back on this period, the more I've come to realize that first of all, it's a much less rosy period than people recall in terms of conflicts and and Russian intervention in the post-Soviet space. Yeah, well, I think this is because our narrative is unduly Western-centered. I mean, I spent the 1990s in Russia, certainly part of the 1990s in Russia, uh, and uh, that it certainly was not a rosy period as far as I'm concerned. It was absolutely disastrous, you know, economically disastrous, it was crime, unemployment, oh God, you know, it's just uh, absolutely uh, atrocious. So, so for those, and by the way, at that time already in the 1990s, you had that emergence of the so-called red-brown forces, right? You know, the forces of revanchism, the communists who were, you know, aligned sometimes with the far right, people like Zhirinovsky, etc., uh, who were calling for kind of you know restoration of some Russian empire or Soviet empire. So a lot of the roots of, of what we're seeing today, of course, go back uh, to the 1990s, early 1990s, to that period of, of uh, Soviet collapse. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing is that actually a lot of the wars have, have gotten larger 
and both in scale and in in scope of conventional conflicts. Because if you look at the second generation of wars in the 2000s, and your your exemplars might be something like Russia Georgia War, the series of war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, the wars between Russia and Ukraine. These are actually that's I, I raise Armenia and Azerbaijan, so it's not entirely Russia centric. Those two are wars of Soviet succession, principally. Uh, that these are principally conflicts that have increased in in intensity as as wars and in some respects in scope. So I, I feel. I almost feel the frustration of a number of colleagues who in the policy establishment very much wanted to focus on strategic competition with China. And what's happening is that the Soviet Union is sort of dead, but it's not gone. It's still undermining their strategic vision. Exactly. It's the nightmare that just keeps coming back. It just never goes away. And and, and we don't know what to expect. I mean, one thing, and we still need to talk about this, is is, is the long game here. Um, Russia, of course, as you well know, has a capacity for reinventing itself, uh, sometimes in in a very negative direction, you know, as a, as a hostile revanchist power, uh, but uh, it's maybe it's it's too early as well to write Russia off uh, and focus on China. I know you have been arguing that for years. Yeah, I think I think it's always too early to write Russia off for a simple reason. I think that Russia through history goes goes through cycles of resurgence, stagnation, decline. Right, and it's very commonly written off during periods of stagnation or during periods of decline. But it has a remarkable capacity for reconstitution. It doesn't follow secular trends. I'd say a lot of powers don't. I often chide folks who think that rising powers stay rising and declining powers stay declining. I don't think that's true. But I think in Russia's case in particular, if it has distinct power, it is reconstitution. And as a country, it seems to have a lot of latent power, a great deal of latent power. That's actually what separates great powers from from. Uh, regional powers and middle powers. And some people debate whether Russia is a great power or, or a weak great power, what have you. And th- those nuances don't interest me as much as as a as a sort of rough understanding of what it means both for state capacity and uh, separately for state power. And so, at least from my point of view, I think that this war, however it ends, will leave Russia in a dramatically weakened state when it comes to. Uh, actual power, the ability to influence international relations, right, to achieve your interests. Power is power over others to get the outcomes you want. I mean, that's the utility of power in international politics. But, you know, what What could happen as well is a defeat in a war like this could actually spur focus on reform as, as, as defeats have historically. I mean, defeats in Russia either spurred uh, reform efforts or revolutions, um, or a combination of these, right? So think about the Crimean War and the effort to modernize Russia in the in the wake of the Crimean War uh, is is one very very good example. Obviously, the uh, Russian defeat in the First World War was followed by a revolution, but then within just a um, couple of decades, of course, with lots of blood being shed uh, through Stalin's uh, murderous policies, you had a policy of industrialization and, and, and the you know, policy of building up a modern state. 
um, uh, the Russo-Japanese War, you know, to go back in time a little bit, uh, or prompted political reform, albeit short, uh, uh, short-lived, uh, slightly short-lived, but still. Uh, so I think there is a capacity in Russia to reflect on the lessons learned, and uh, uh, sometimes these defeats actually do play a positive role from the perspective of you know Russian uh, resurgence in kind of medium or long term. So I think you're. you're you're quite right. I mean, the question is, what will this defeat, if it does come about, which I'm not yet certain that it will necessarily in the kind of way that we might expect, but, you know, suppose that Russia is defeated uh, unquestionably, etc., etc., will this then force a rethinking uh, in Russia? I mean, I would hope, I would hope that it does, and I would hope that Russia for once tries to, um, uh, to look into, you know, to pursue that policy that the Chinese pursued since Deng Xiaoping's time. You know, the Chinese have this way of, um, there's, a, there's a Chinese saying called Tao Guang Yang Hui in Chinese, and that is to, 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 to bide your time and, 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 and just to, focus, to keep a low profile and focus on economic development. By the way, uh, reasonable people like Trenin before he, uh, you know, went over to Putin's side, used to say that this is exactly what Russia should do. It should abandon its imperial ambitions in, in what, you know, so-called near abroad and, uh, and stop calling it near abroad just focus on its own economic development, focus on its own modernization efforts, and turn itself into a modern capable state. Uh, exercise soft power if it comes to it. Uh, you know, abandon this kind of imperialistic efforts that are so self-defeating that fundamentally make Russia a weaker actor on the international stage. Russia is weakening itself. It's making itself completely irrelevant. So, um, you know, maybe ideas like this will actually prevail, reasonable heads will prevail, and you will have an effort to actually overcome uh corruption in Russia, to modernize Russia, to uh, modernize it politically, modernize it economically, uh, and, and also in international politics, uh, uh, move away from this hostility towards the West, which is actually, you know, I'm not, to I'm not you know, being uh, a starry-eyed liberal here in terms of let's engage with Europe and make Russia a part of Europe. It's not going to happen for various reasons, not least because the Europeans don't want to see Russia, <laughs> Russia anywhere close here. But anyway, the, the, but it doesn't make sense for Russia to do what it is doing now, i.e. to shut itself off from the West, which makes it that it has lost all leverage with Europe, it has lost uh, all of its leverage with China, it is becoming some kind of a vassal of China almost. The reasonable Russia would be a modern uh, Russia, um, uh, a capable Russia, a Russia that has, uh, that, that is able to balance between the East and the West, not necessarily get itself involved in this conflict between, between Europe and China, etc. So let me interrupt you. I think that often in discourse, we conflate reform with retrenchment. One, a discussion on overall strategy, and a second one on the internal dynamics of Russia. And my view of it is that retrenchment is quite possible and likely, and we've seen in periods, let's say, after the defeat in the Crimean War. And I, I think it could be actually almost a natural evolution, a transition to a more defensive strategy, such as the one... Uh, elected by Gorbachev uh, from a more offensive strategy that his predecessors pursued in international politics and competing with the United States. That's one discussion. However, when it comes to reform, here I'm a bit more pessimistic. because I, domestic reform, etc. Because I don't think that domestic reforms in Russia uh, resultant from defeats and wars last. 
because I think that Russia has a strong tradition of launching reforms after defeats that don't last. Well, uh, yeah, and that, you know, you could argue that and you have people uh, like Stephen Kotkin, for example, who do see that long historical trend of Russia just being, uh, 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 you know, autocracy and more autocracy and autocracy never changing, etc. I mean, you can actually be modernizing autocracy for this matter. You know, autocracy does not necessarily mean that you're uh, completely backward and there are plenty of examples of autocracies that are actually quite reasonable modernizing sure. autocracy. I look at Kazakhstan. I mean, look, it's Kazakhstan a democracy by God it's not you know <laughs> not even close to any kind of democracy but they're you know they're modernizing their economy they're quite open etc cetera, etc cetera. Sergey those aren't the reforms westerners are interested in those are actually the reforms they're afraid of ah, a successful autocracy <laughs> as a model of modernization without political liberalization is actually one of the typical biggest fears in the this west this is a fear look, because look, it's intellectual not, competition look, no of course look i'm not i'm not you know arguing that this is what should rush of course i'm a liberal of course I want Russia to be democratic society. Just the realist part of me says, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? <laughs> well, I, I, here's my view of it. Here's my view. It can happen, but we shouldn't bank on it. Just like planning to win the lottery is not a good uh, retirement plan. Sure. Sure. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know what? And if it does happen, well, uh, we'll know what to do if we happen if we happen to uh, be so fortunate, right, with that outcome. But it's much safer to plan on Russia probably continuing as some kind of autocracy or or liberal state as long as it doesn't invade its neighbors you know that is already a good start yeah the <laughs> yeah but you know right but you know what typically happens in policy is when states are uh consistently unsuccessful in shaping the behavior of an adversary and by the way i'm just advancing now as a theory i, I don't actually think that this is what always happens but i have a hypothesis that i've developed as a result of the last half hour of us talking uh, that when states are not successful shaping the behavior of an adversary, they begin trying to figure out ways to uh, shape the internal makeup of the adversary. Since they can't fix their behavior, they try to they try to change the to regime, to undermine the yeah, to undermine. And you know that's that's sometimes quite counterproductive. Yeah, because because you would think that the real issue with with Russia is independent of what kind of country it is, its behavior behavior in international politics, right? Well, exactly. But, you know, for me, the key issue that the Russians, I think, will need to deal with and recognize is what is actually in Russia's national interests. Uh, what is happening today with the invasion of Ukraine, in, to my mind, is not in accordance with Russia's national interests subjectively defined. Sure. Yeah, and that is the problem, right? They don't see their own national interest. Their own national interest is in strengthening themselves internally. And you could even imagine a situation where a strong Russia is exercising economic pull, soft power pull, etc. Now it's abandoning all of those things. It has become a pariah in the world. It has turned its back on the West, and that means turning its back on modernization because, you know, uh, uh, the West still stands in many ways for technological breakthroughs and modernization. Is that in Russia's national interest? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Sure. But you know, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say historically, major powers are often their own worst enemies, right? Well, they, they commit strategic blunders. They engage in strategic sort of malfeasance. And, and if anything leads to the downfall of their power or a precipitous decline, it's their own actions. It's the choices they've made. Of course, of course. But sometimes they're able to recognize this uh, and, and, and uh, try to act and modernize themselves you know, do something with themselves and russia is not an exception they have tried to do that i mean 
for, for after all the uh, overextension of the Cold War and all the conflicts in Africa and, and so on and so forth, you know, in Asia, Gorbachev realized that this you know retrenchment was what was needed. It's just you know, and I, it was a good conclusion. The problem with Gorbachev was that he couldn't hold the system together. Right, it fell apart. Uh, the the idea about retrenchment, the pulling out from places like Afghanistan, uh, you know, withdrawn support for somebody like you know, Mengistu uh, uh, in Ethiopia or for the Angolans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This was the right thing to do. Can I? Sort of touch a bit of a electrified rail that you get in in historical debates on this subject. To what extent did this really depend on Gorbachev versus many of the Soviet elites and and the overall sort of let's say Soviet leadership uh, had already concluded that the competition, the way they were pursuing it, wasn't sustainable that they were in decline and that they needed to conduct internal reforms. And Gorbachev's selection was a recognition more of that rather than he himself uh, the principal agent of change. To, to a certain extent, although uh, I think there was a deep realization already in the Soviet leadership that things were not going, uh, were not going in their direction. It wasn't really connected to foreign policy per se. Um, it was connected to the realization that economy was not working, that things were not going right economically. And Dropov was, knew that things were not going right. They just didn't know what to do about it. Uh, Soviet in, involvement in the what was called then the Third World uh, was uh, uh, was a result of what the, one of Gorbachev's advisors called inertia of proletarian internationalism. I, they got involved there at some point and they just kept going and going and going. That happens to us too. It's, it's, the, it's the inertia of strategy in pursuing diminishing Exactly. And I, I think Russia today also suffers from that. I mean, they did get overextended. At one point, they felt themselves like they had lots of money. They seemed to be able to project uh, global influence once again to places like the Middle East, for example, and Syria and so on. Obviously, not on the Soviet uh, scale, but still. And you still see this. You still see this. And the question is, you know, do the elites around Putin, do they recognize that this inertia, as it were, it's actually harmful to Russia in many ways, and it detracts from their ability to focus focus on their domestic problems, which is what they should do first and foremost if they want to survive. Will they recognize it? I hope they will. Let me let me ask this kind of this one last question that I've been pondering. I think that whatever happens in this war, Russia suffered a strategic defeat. And the strategic defeat stems from, at least in my perspective, this conflict being also in part about a Russian attempt to relitigate the post-Cold War settlement in Europe, Russia's position in Europe, Russia's role in European security architecture or lack thereof, how security outcomes are determined in, in Europe, and by who. And from my point of view, putting aside the sort of tactical level situation on the ground and, and the future of the war between Russia and Ukraine, I think that Russia has really shut itself out of European security for quite a long time. I don't know how long it is, because judging by President Macron's statements this week, it might not be it might not be that long if, if European Western Europeans have anything to say about it. But still, do, do you share do you share uh, my sentiment? I, I, I share your sentiment in the sense that I also feel that in, after 1991, the uh, European security infrastructure, in, you know, infrastructure did really kind of exclude Russia. Of course, the Russians did try to be part of that, and you had the OCE, uh, but it was toothless. 
um, but they did not, you know, they were not anchored in that security security framework, as it were. Um, is that a is that a problem? Well, yes, I think if we're looking for roots of conflict, of course, we can point to Putin's imperialism, but it's never as complex as, as simple as that, right? There's more com complexity to this, and I think the fact that Russia was never anchored in the European security environment uh, uh, is is an issue. But today, I think putting this front and center misses a big point, and that is that Russia. Through its actions, through its very stupid uh, blunder that it committed in Ukraine, kind of really took away its own right to talk about European security infrastructure uh, and and its future role within it. So, like I said, and I've, you know, uh, I'll, I'll again draw your attention to the Chinese EDM about keeping your low profile. What Russia should do is to talk to to talk less about its supposed greatness and you know, concert of Europe or whatever it wants to be part of now you know, returning to the spirit of 1815 or something. No, that's not what Russia needs. Russia needs to recognize that Russia has undermined what in the past could have counted as its own legitimate security interests yep. by, by invading a neighboring country. And now it should recognize that it doesn't really have much of a voice in this matters, and it's unlikely to get a voice anytime soon. And it should focus in on internal modernization. And so with time, of course, eventually it will get a voice. Uh, but this will take some smart policy and uh, as a first step, uh, abandoning its uh, completely futile, ridiculous war in Ukraine. By the way, if we take a historical view, Russia is not, not only in my point of view, shut itself out from being involved in conversations in European security in the future. As you said, uh, good luck to Russians talking about legitimate security interests moving forward. But they've, in some respects, really fixed the history because uh, the history of uh, post-Cold War security architecture in Europe was somewhat debated. Who's to blame? Why? Which process drove it? What have you? But with this act, right, the Russian government has essentially written that history in one distinct narrative. Right, there's very much Russia's to blame. Yeah, and that whatever was done was done, if anything, with foresight because of Russia's uh, uh, likely imperialistic sort of revengeism. Sure, sure, sure. And essentially, that they, I'll put, it, they have uh, through their own actions settled the debate. Yeah, well, exactly. Eastern Europeans can now say, ah, we told you, we've been telling you for 30 years, you know, you should never trust the Russians. Look what they're doing. And of course, that's exactly what Eastern Europeans are saying at the moment. So that is, you know, if, okay, if we approach this question as historians and we look back. Well, one of us says. <laughs> well, if we look back at the 30 years of of, uh, of the construction of uh, the architecture and Russia's exclusion, et cetera, et cetera, we can see where the problems are. We can see where the problems are. But as you say, today, this train has left the station already. We cannot renegotiate this question. And that is principally because of Russia's own actions. You know, what, what, what can we do? What can we say? Russia deserves its current place. The challenge I think we have is that it leaves European security fundamentally unsettled because outside of NATO, at the end of the day, the largest military power on the continent is still Russia. Maybe at the moment incredibly weakened, but Russia will rebuild. It's not a question of if, it's just a matter of when. 
Now, now, now you're 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 playing the Macron line here. Hmm? <laughs> now you're being Macron. Well, I'm not being Macron in in the in the sense of policy prescriptions, but if but in the sense of recog- recognizing the problem, well, where's Russia Macron going right. to go? I mean, what's the well, exactly. what's Russia the vision? Is not well. I mean, you're right. Russia is not going to disappear. And yeah, of course, we now we can talk about the you know, Russia needs to accept that it has committed terrible uh, blunder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Will it? You know, maybe it won't. Should we somehow prod Russia towards uh, a more reasonable position by offering at least a carrot of some shape? I think that's what Macron is thinking. Yeah, but okay, here's the view. You can agree with people on the problem statement. You can have very different view on the prescription for how to solve it, right? That's, Mm -hmm. I think, probably the challenge with the the problem with the, from my point of view, with the French position, right? So if if you accept that Russia isn't going to disappear, the Russia will remain a military challenge in Europe. You can have a number of different uh, views on how best to deal with that challenge. Mm. Uh, I, I and I add to that the the additional problem with the fact that you know European security in part is also unsettled because of the sort of fragmenting Russian influence of what was the former Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, and that you're still going to have from my point of view, these ongoing conflicts like the Russo-Ukrainian war or probably ongoing conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in the sense that, okay, p- putting aside just sort of Russian imperialist revanchism, there are these ongoing issues that are legacy issues from the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which, you know, I, I actually think Sergei Plohi did put correctly that this was in many respects more process than an event. Or maybe, yes, it was an event, it was a historical event, but it's also a process because empires take a long time to collapse. Well, what's the conclusion then? What do we do about it? I think we talk about it and uh, in your case, write interesting books. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and um, I, may not, I may not agree with Macron on, on, his, on any of his prescriptions, but it's, it's worth recognizing the challenge. And Well, he's right. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go out there and criticize Macron and say, well, look, he's naive about Russia. There are plenty of Eastern Europeans who will do this for me. Um, you know, Macron understands, drawn on, on the French experience, this notion of losing an empire. You know, France lo- lost an empire, it suffered all kinds of defeat from Indochina to Algeria. Uh, but in the end, France uh, found the role, right? It lost an empire and found, found the role. And that is a role that was anchored to, to Europe, anchored to NATO. And Russia just simply doesn't have that. And where do you go from this? You know, I don't know. But, but I think part of the challenge is a question of identity is that France, to a considerable extent, was able to find a postmodern identity as sort of a great power, but as a nation state, a power without an empire, a power that's not clutching uh, uh, all these colonial possessions. And and you could argue that it sort of held uh, Algeria to the last um, yeah. uh, before giving it up. And, and Russia hasn't made this imperialist transition. It is like Emile Payne has described, I think, accurately as a sort of a halfway house, right? It's well, exactly. But, you know, it should, I think, uh, a recognition of this problem should start with Russia itself recognizing that it has a problem. And, and that fundamentally, uh, our leverage here is very, very limited. What can we do until the Russians themselves recognize that they have a problem and they haven't yet? It needs a change in strategic culture and some respects also a cadre change, a change of elites. Sure, sure. 
And maybe we do need a conversation. I'm always in favor of a conversation. You know, I, I try, of course, as a former Russian uh, to maintain my, uh, my, my links to Russia, to maintain conversation with the policy community there, just to understand what they're thinking. And I think we need to maintain this conversation. That's as, 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 as uh, uh, you know, big a task we can set ourselves at this stage. Okay. On that sort of inconclusive, but nonetheless thoughtful note, I think, want to end our conversation. Sergey, I really want to thank you for spending time with me. Although actually you invited me to, to this town. Well, we, we've had a good time. <laughs> yeah, we've had, we had a good time. We had a good time out, out yesterday too, uh, out in Bologna. I just want to say that I think Bologna is very underrated as far as Italian cities go. Everybody should just come to Bologna uh, and, and enjoy the place. It's fantastic. No, don't, because I noticed there aren't that many <laughs> tourists here. In fact, stay away. It's, it's, there's, there are other cities in Italy that already have plenty of tourism. Um, but anyway, no, no, uh, I want to thank you for talking to me. Uh, this, this has been another episode of the, of the Russia Continuity, and, and thanks everyone for listening in.